the perceptions of Christianity for those who are outside the church and sometimes even for those who have attended church some is that Christianity is really only for good people. People who are morally good, perhaps even morally superior. I think an even more common perception for those outside the church is that those are people who are in the church are those who think they are too good for others. That those inside the church are convinced they are morally superior and they spend their days looking down their self-righteous nose at others. Maybe today you're new to church. And if so, we're so glad you're with us this morning. And, and maybe even as you sit here this morning, one of those sort of resonates with you. As you sit here, you think everyone else in the room is good and you think of yourself as not good. And so you wonder, do you belong? Or you look around the room and if you wonder, are these more of those self-righteous people who look down their nose at others? And you wonder, do I want to be associated with people like that? Are those perceptions accurate? Are they true? Is Christianity for those who are already good? Are Christians to spend their days looking down their self-righteous nose at others? Now this morning in our passage, we'll see how Jesus, in fact, undermines these perceptions and shows us again just how shocking his grace really is. The Jesus way and his kingdom is upside down or right side up from how so often it is misunderstood in our world. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 9. Today we'll be in Matthew 9 beginning in verse 9. So in the Bibles near you, you can find it on page 814. Page 814. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or, or a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you. You can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open up the larger numbers or the chapter numbers, we're in chapter 9. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 9. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible yourself, we as a church would love to give you one today. At the back of the room, there's an information table. There's a stack of Bibles right there. It says free. Please, following the services, go by, grab one of those Bibles, and take it with you today. So we continue our series this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to, the, to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. 
Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. This morning as we look at our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Jesus came for those who are sick in sin. So follow him unconditionally and join him in loving and welcoming sinners. Jesus came for those who are sick in sin, so follow him unconditionally and join him in loving and welcoming sinners. And today we'll look at our passage in three parts. So first we'll see following, and then feasting, and then third we'll see fasting. So first we see following in verse 9. We see that as Matthew was, or that Jesus was passing by, he saw a man named Matthew. And the man called Matthew here, elsewhere in other gospel accounts, is sometimes referred to as Levi. So if you see Matthew or Levi among the disciples, it's referring to the same person. And Matthew was a tax collector, and he was at work sitting at a tax booth. Now these booths were, were uh, there on, on kind of main thoroughfares, and when someone would go by, they would pay taxes, but not simply like ours, you pay toll simply for driving by. This would be your tax for going by, but also for the goods that you have. So this would be like you're on the Mass Pike. Not only do they stop you to pay, but they also like look in your car to see what do you have there, what were the goods you're taking, and they add some extra on top of that. So that's what Matthew was doing. That was Matthew's job. Now Jews, which Matthew was, who were tax collectors, were despised and ostracized by their own people because they were seen as traitors because they were collecting taxes for the occupiers. They hated Romans. And by their association with Romans, they were associating often with Gentiles. They were often also seen as dishonest because most of them took extra money on top of what they were set, set aside to do. So, so these tax collectors were seen in every way to be religiously and culturally outsiders, despised by their own people. And evidently, Matthew was simply going about his work, and Jesus comes seeking out Matthew. Jesus is the one who took the initiative here, not Matthew. And of course, this is always Jesus' way. Jesus is always the one seeking sinners. We are never the seekers. We are the ones being sought. And so Jesus says to Matthew, follow me. This is the call, the invitation to Matthew that he would come and follow Jesus as one of his disciples. And notice what Matthew does. He got up and followed Jesus. Now, the sense of getting up and following is, is not like Matthew took the afternoon off. He, he didn't turn to the other tax collectors and say, hey, guys, I'm going to be out of the office the rest of the day, but I'll be back tomorrow. That's not what's happening here. It is that Matthew gets up and, and leaves behind his life as a tax collector. It's a picture of the call of Jesus Christ. When Jesus calls, he calls us to follow him as king. It's not Jesus plus other things. No, it's trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. So he called Matthew to leave behind his life of dishonesty, of greed and sin, and to follow Jesus. And so this man, Matthew, became one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He's also the author of this gospel account, the gospel of Matthew, written by this disciple. Friends, do you see that if a tax collector like Matthew 
outsider, despised by God's people, can be called into Jesus' kingdom and mission. Do you see what this says? Anyone, friends, can be brought in. No matter where you have been, no matter your own story, you can be invited into the mission of Jesus. Jesus is always inviting the most unlikely of people into the family of God. When we step back and look at this chapter, chapter 9, it's really interesting because we saw last week, if you were with us at the beginning, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. We have our text today, the calling of Matthew. And then next week, we'll see the rest of chapter 9, Jesus does several miracles. So here we have miracles, the call of Matthew, and miracles. Did, did you know, Matthew, as he wrote this, get confused and, and mean to write something else? No, we see is that Matthew is including his call as a miracle like the other miracles. In the same way, it's a miracle when one is raised from the dead. So it is when salvation comes into a life. That's the same powerful God doing miraculous things when one is transformed out of darkness into light. God works miracles in individuals' lives when he calls us to himself. This real instance in Matthew's life is a picture of the conversion of the Christian. Just as Matthew wasn't seeking Jesus, friends, none of us were first seeking Jesus. It often seems that way from our own perspective. But the only reason we begin to seek is God by his grace is already at work pursuing us. And Jesus comes bringing this new life, this gift of salvation, a gift purchased by Christ, provided for him for any and all who would turn and receive it by faith. And then as we follow Jesus, we see that it's always costly to follow Jesus. It costs everything to follow Jesus. It doesn't cost us for salvation. Salvation is free. Christ has paid it all. But in response to that great salvation, it costs us everything while yet we gain even more. So friend, the question for you today is, will you follow Jesus? Are you following Jesus? This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to leave a job as Matthew did, but it does mean that all who follow Jesus have a new vocation, a new calling as a disciple of Jesus. And so friend, if you're a Christian, that is your truest vocation, a disciple of Jesus. I wonder if some of us, if we're trying to follow Jesus, but we're also holding on to old ways, old patterns, We've turned back to old ways. Friend, follow Jesus. It is costly, but it is good and worthwhile. So we first see following, but then second we see feasting in verses 10 through 13. So notice Matthew is called to follow Jesus. And what's the first thing that Matthew does? He throws a banquet, a big dinner party, a feast at his house. And who's at the feast? We see many people, in fact, many tax collectors and sinners, as well as Jesus and his disciples. Now, this term tax collectors and, and sinners is a commonly used phrase in the culture of that day, also then used in the Gospels, because this was sort of the, the most notorious of sinners would have been tax collectors and other quote-unquote sinners. So what this means is that these outsiders, these sinners like Matthew are also there. 
So friends, notice that the one who's been called engages in extraordinary and intentional hospitality. Now think about it. Matthew has just left everything, job included. He's just left everything to follow Jesus. But friends, notice this is no joyless man. He's not sad at the cost of following Jesus. No, instead, what does he do? He throws a great party. This is in response to the goodness and the grace of coming to know Jesus Christ and the joy of that dwarfs any cost there is in following Jesus. And what does Matthew do? He introduces his friends to Jesus, his co-workers, fellow tax collectors. It almost seems everybody he knows they can get to come to his house, he invites them there because he wants them to meet the Jesus that he has met. And so here we see Jesus reclining at table, meaning sharing a meal with the ones called tax collectors and sinners. Now, the sharing of a meal in our culture means something, but in most parts of the world, it's more substantial than it is here today. Many parts of the world, to be invited into someone's home for a meal really means something relationally. And certainly in history, and at this time in the world, it was a big deal to share table fellowship. And across the Gospels, we see Jesus often sharing meals, and very often sharing meals with what the religious leaders thought were outsiders, sharing meals with people he shouldn't have been sharing meals with in their eyes. And that's what's happening here. Jesus sharing rich, substantial table fellowship with people who were thought of as the worst of sinners. And we see that Jesus' actions result in a sharp, critical response from the Pharisees. The, the religious leaders of the day, it's almost as if they're just kind of stalking Jesus and they watch, they see who's there, and so they come to Jesus' disciples, verse 11, and look at what they ask. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now their concern is not that Jesus is eating and drinking, it's not that he's having this big banquet, but it is who he's eating and drinking with. Why is Jesus scandalously sharing a meal with these sinners? And notice Jesus' response, verse 12 and 13. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus is probably using well-known proverbial imagery of the day, but of course it's easily understood by all. You don't go to the doctor because you're well. You go to the doctor because you're sick. Now, certainly in our culture, with the advances of med medicines, you know, it, there's wisdom in kind of wellness visits to a doctor. But in general, around the world today and across history, you only go to a doctor if you're sick and usually if you're quite sick. And when I was growing up and I think of the doctors that I thought of then, the show that I remember watching as a kid was called Little House on the Prairie. And if things got really bad on Little House on the Prairie, they would say this. They would say, go get Doc Baker. Now, Doc Baker was a doctor. I think he was also the veterinarian. Maybe in the postman too. I'm not sure. He did, he did a lot of different things. But you didn't call Dr. Baker for like a, a wellness check. But it's like this person's about to die. They're having a baby. I mean, there are a few things going on. And like somebody needs to run and get Doc Baker. And he would show up and save the day. You go to the doctor, the doctor comes because you are sick, because you're quite ill. And friends, Jesus is showing us that he is the great physician who has come to seek out 
the spiritually sick. He came to address the greatest sickness, the sickness of our sin, the sickness that infects every single person. It infects every one of us today. We saw last week that Jesus came to provide this cure. So Jesus, as we saw last week, is able to pronounce forgiveness. So he answers the Pharisees, and the Pharisees likely agreed with Jesus. And they thought at least, well, yes, indeed, it is the sick who need a physician. And they're thinking, we're not sick. Yes, it's good that you came for the sick people, but we are well. Because in their own minds, they are righteous more righteous than others. And yet Jesus knew them to be spiritually ill as well. And perhaps their spiritual illness was even more dangerous because it wasn't so outwardly obvious. And it's deeply dangerous because they were unwilling to admit their own illness. They didn't see that they were sick. And this is always a great danger for all of us as well. If I'm unwilling to admit I have spiritual need. If I'm unwilling to admit I'm infected by the sickness of sin. The tax collector more obviously had outward signs of this sickness. Known as sinners, wouldn't have denied it themselves, while the Pharisees outwardly don't have the signs. Inwardly, they have the heart disease of sin. So then Jesus sends the Pharisees out with an assignment. Look at verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So to the religious leaders who knew God's word, who knew this word, Jesus quotes to them from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now in the context of Hosea's day, God was saying that those in authority, even though they were maintaining the rituals of the temple, they were going through the motions of worship and practices that God had given to them, their hearts were far from God. So he was critiquing them saying, oh, you look outwardly righteous, but your hearts are very far from God. And the same was true of the Pharisees in that day. Outwardly appearing to be righteous, outwardly devoted, but inwardly far from God. Friends, all of us, all people are spiritually ill. We have the sickness of sin and we're in desperate need of a healing work from Jesus Christ. Friends, we should see so clear that Jesus loved and pursued sinners. But he did not come that he might join them in their sin. But out of love, he came to free them, deliver them from that sin. Friend, what a wonderful Savior we have who came pursuing us. We, we have no distant God who said, if you sinners clean yourselves up, if you improve yourselves, if you're devoted enough, then you can climb your way towards me. That's not the story of Christianity. But it's of God himself, God the Son, humbling himself, coming into this sinful world, living in the midst of sinners that he might pursue and save sinners like us. Friend, if you're a Christian, that is your glorious Savior. The one who's provided reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, we look at the text today, we need to see that Jesus closely associated with sinners and he also always condemned all sin. He did both. Close, loving connection and calling sin what it is. He cared for them too much to leave them in their sin. 
He came to love them and call them into repentance, a, a new life of following him. Notice that Jesus doesn't deny that they are sick. He doesn't come to those who are sick with sin and say, you're well as you are. You're fine as you are. That's not what he says. Jesus loved enough to call sin what it was. He didn't say, I don't want to harm our friendship. So I won't tell you the truth about sin. No, they needed to repent, just like all sinners need to repent. Repentance is a changing of mind and direction. So we all in our own sin are walking away from God, embracing all sorts of things other than God. And repentance, when we come to understand there is a Savior, we turn away from those things and turn to Christ. And that's a consistent call across the Scriptures. Repent and turn to Christ. That's what all of us need to do. And friends, the wonderful news is that Jesus came, as we see, for all sorts of people author by the name of Tim Chester has written a really helpful book called uh, Meals with Jesus. I commend it to you as he looks at a number of meals across the scriptures that Jesus has. And here's what Chester writes in his book. When Jesus eats with Matthew, the message is clear. Jesus has come for people on the margins, people who've made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God, the self-righteous and the self-important. Friends, Jesus came for any and all sins and sinners. There's no sin too great for Jesus to forgive. And friends, this should be good news for every one of us. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad, we're humbled that you would spend part of a summer morning with us. And we're sorry that so often we as Christians have given a wrong impression of Christianity. If we've given you the idea that you have to be good to become a Christian, we're, we're sorry for that. And we admit that so often those who claim the name of Christ, we often are self-righteous and we're sorry for that as well. So where we failed, we want you to look not at us though, but look at Jesus the gracious Savior who came to rescue sinners like you and like me, to change us, to forgive us, to bring us into life now, life eternal, into the very family of God. And so if this is new to you, we'd love for you to know more about that. So if you're curious on the, on the connection card, you could write, write it there. Following the service, I'll be at the door. I would love to chat with you. Or if you came with a family member or a friend, and if they're a Christian, they would love to have a conversation with you. But for those who are Christians, once we've trusted in Jesus as Savior and King, as we begin to follow him, friends, we're brought into his mission of pursuing and loving sinners and telling them of the Savior who's come to save them from the sickness of sin. Now, as we join in this mission of Jesus, of loving and welcoming sinners, there are some temptations that all of us will face. On one side is the strong temptation for us to become like the Pharisees we see in our text. There's a great temptation for self-righteousness to develop within us. Such an easy and tempting drift. Each week I go to the grocery store to buy groceries for our family. And so, so when I go, I, I go get the groceries, I load them in the car, and then I always take my cart back to the cart place. Not everyone does that. And as I do it, I, I self-righteously look at all those around me who don't do it. 
don't be that person. So, so even yesterday, I pulled in and this lady right next to me, she just puts the cart just right there. I mean, three places down is where the cart is. But I looked down my nose, at least internally, in a self-righteous way. Now, it's not a sin to just leave your cart out. But if I'm self-righteous in that way, how greater is the temptation in so many ways as a Christian as we begin to make some progress. Let's say you're growing in maturity. You're, you're fighting sin. You're seeing some of that. But often in our immaturity, we become religious Pharisees looking down our nose at others. I wonder in your life, when are you most tempted to be self-righteous? But there's also a temptation on the other side. Instead of the legalism of the Pharisee, there's a Temptation of license, of not calling sin what it is. We can convince ourselves or want to think that we're truly loving a person more by not speaking of their sin. By saying, if I really love the person, I, I won't try to tell them that something they might be doing would be sinful. But friend, if we begin to think this way, in essence, we're thinking that we're more loving than Jesus. For Jesus thoroughly loved people and always spoke to sin. Not one or the other, but both. So friends, to truly love people, if they're sick in sin, we have to be willing to at some point speak of that. Friends, notice that Jesus didn't tell Matthew, Matthew, just stay as you are and be your true self. He didn't say to Matthew that most of all, what you need to do, Matthew, is express yourself and your own desires. No, out of love, Jesus calls Matthew to something else. Friends, it isn't loving for us to call something that Jesus calls sin, something less than sin. So I wonder which is your temptation today? Legalism, self-righteousness, or license? not being willing to call sin what it is. And friends, as Christians, as we come to grips with this, it should be good news to us. I hope it's good news to us that, that Jesus provides forgiveness for all sin and every sinner who will trust in him. That there is no sin too great for Jesus to forgive. And I think at every moment, in every culture, there are some sins that I think, honestly, it's tempting for us to think this is almost an unforgivable sin. Friend, do we believe that we are to welcome and that Jesus can forgive the racist? Do we believe that we're to welcome and that Jesus can forgive the, the wealthy person captured by greed? So many other sins we could think about where we might wonder if we're honest. Is that really forgivable? Would we really want someone who's committed that sin in our church? Because Jesus came to provide salvation for all. For all who admit their sickness in sin. For all who admit their need of Savior. So now we who are empowered by the Holy Spirit join in this mission of welcoming sinners that they might come to know Jesus Christ. And one of the fundamental ways we do this is what we see modeled in our text today. Intentional hospitality. 
Author Tim Chester says it this way. When you combine a passion for Jesus with shared meals, you create potent gospel opportunities. Meals bring mission into the ordinary. But that's where most people are living in the ordinary. And that's where we need to go to reach them. So as you think about neighbors and coworkers, fellow students who you are interested in loving them and pointing them to Christ, one of the best ways we can do that is to invite them around the table. However small and simple your table may be, to invite them for a meal. And from there, so often, friendship, substantial friendship grows. So do you think of meals in this way, a strategic opportunity to love people? An intermediate step might even be at a time like this. Let's say following the service, you meet someone, you have a conversation. You might say, hey, would you want to go for lunch afterwards? You're not going to your home, perhaps, but you're going to a restaurant. The same sort of hospitality can happen, and you don't have to do the dishes afterwards. That's even better. A way to serve in this intentional way. So on one side, we extend hospitality, but also on the other side. Notice that Jesus was not the one throwing the banquet here, was he? He was invited by this sinner now turned disciple. And what did Jesus do? He accepted the invitation. So as Christians, are we willing to accept the invitations of others who would invite us over who don't know Christ? If your coworker who doesn't know Christ invited you over, would you be excited by that? Or would you try to think of a way out of it? Let's be the sort of people who welcome people in, but also are thrilled that someone would trust us enough to invite us over. We'd be eager to receive that invitation. So friend, this summer, when the days are a little bit longer, a little bit slower, who could you engage in hospitality with to love and welcome sinners? So we see feasting. And then thirdly, we see fasting in verses 14 through 17. Here, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they ask him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, fasting was a part of the rhythm of the life of Jewish people in that day. God had set aside fasting as a part of the observation of the Day of Atonement. Now, in time, the Pharisees had developed additional fasting rhythms, so they would fast twice a week on Monday and Thursday. And John the Baptist, his disciples, fasted regularly as well. So they asked Jesus, Jesus, we notice your disciples are not fasting. Why not? If really serious religious people fast, why aren't they fasting? And Jesus answers, look down at verse 15. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And of course, the assumed answer is no. You don't fast at a wedding. When the bridegroom is at the wedding, it's time for feasting, not fasting. I mean, you've been to weddings. Typically, there's food and drink and often a lot of it. Now, if you're about to get married, you're trying to save some money, you might say, actually, we're supposed to fast at a wedding. You could save, save a lot of money that way. Be a shorter wedding, I guess, as well. But no, typically, you go to a wedding, there's an elaborate meal, lots to eat. Why? Because the, the bridegroom and the, the bride are there, so there's much feasting. So Jesus is saying, the bridegroom has come. Who's the bridegroom? It's him. Jesus is the bridegroom who's come for his bride. So now is not the time for his disciples to fast, but to feast and celebrate his coming. So Jesus is saying, now that he, the bridegroom, has come, his followers should be joyful like wedding guests. 
They're not to walk around with long faces, but hearts filled with joy. Friends, where Jesus is, there is joy. He is the center of our joy. He is the source of our joy. And what else is Jesus teaching them and us? This idea of the bridegroom is mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures, in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, but they're always referring to the covenant God, Yahweh. And notice what Jesus is doing. He's taking that and applying it to himself, clearly claiming to be God himself. He's the promised one who has come and helping to see that he is the center. He's the one they've been longing for. So, so sadly, ironically, the Jews have been fasting, waiting for the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. And they don't even see it. They're still fasting. And the Messiah is right in front of them. Now Jesus goes on to say that a day would come when the bridegroom would be taken away. Referring to himself. He would be taken away when he would be arrested, when he would be put to death. That's when he's taken away. So after Jesus is arrested, put to death, he's raised triumphant, he ascends. Now there is a time as we await his second coming when there is value of fasting again for God's people. So in this in-between time, there's, there's a place for fasting as we await his return. And to sort of make his point, Jesus then uses a couple of illustrations to show how he has come to fulfill the Old Testament and how he's doing something new in the world. So first he says that you don't take a piece of new, unshrunk cloth and put it on an old garment in order to try to patch it up. He says that because the unshrunk cloth will shrink and then you'll have a larger tear than you have before. You can't mix the two. So Jesus is saying that Jesus, he, a Jew, has come to fulfill all the scriptures. And he's come to accomplish the, something that brings new, greater access to God. The coming of Jesus changes everything. He goes on to say as well, verse 17, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Old wineskins are, are stretched out. They can't stretch more. If you put new wine in, the new wine ferments, so it expands, so it would cause the, a rupture in the old wineskins. So you lose both the wineskins and the wine. And again, the same essential point. Jesus says something new has come. All that God has promised across the scriptures is culminating in the coming of Jesus. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is at the center. This week I've been thinking just a lot about that dinner party at Matthew's house. Just trying to imagine in my mind what it was like seeing the people there. So there's Jesus, Matthew, Jesus' disciples, all this large collection of tax collectors and sinners, and just like, what was it like that night to be in the room? I also think through about us, like, like where would we be in that room? Initially, we'd be among the sinners and tax collectors. That's who we would be. Invited in by Jesus, feeling appropriately somewhat out of place. Yet if we turn to Christ by faith, changed, transformed, made new, made a disciple of Jesus. So then we, we move over a seat and now we're like Matthew. One who's come to see the beauty of Christ, following Christ and knowing the cost of Christ, but also like Matthew saying, I want everyone I know to know this marvelous Savior. 
So we're saying to friends and neighbors, co-workers, strangers, won't you come and meet Jesus? And friends, that's the seat we want to stay in the rest of our lives. To be that sort of people always amazed at God's grace. I can't believe I'm at the table with Jesus. I know where I was apart from Christ. Christ has saved me and transformed me. And so I want others to know him. Let's pray that that would be our heartbeat no matter how long we live. Let's also be alert, careful, because it'd be so easy for us to get up from the table and become the Pharisees watching from the outside. Because a creeping self-righteousness so easily grows within us. We lose sight of the beauty of God's grace. We lose sight of the hope that the gospel offers to any and all who receive Christ by faith. And so then we find ourselves always looking down our nose, always accusing, lacking in joy and a true sense of the gospel. So friends, let's pray. We'd be people eager always to welcome people to meet our great Savior. So we do that as we scatter to the city this week to to work and to campus, to our neighborhoods, inviting people in. But we also do it every week when we gather like this. Let's pray that we as a church would, would always be a people struggling with sin as we are, but being changed by his grace who are eager to welcome the worst of sinners. Whatever our culture thinks of as the worst of sinners, may we always be clear they are welcomed here. We would love for them to come here. We'd want them to know that they're loved and cared for. We'd want to make them feel comfortable to sit with them and show friendship and care for them. May we never have a creeping self-righteousness in our life together as a church. Remembering where we were saved by God's grace. So far from him and he brought us in. So we're eager with open arms to welcome people in. So friends, let's give ourselves passionately to this mission while we await this promised return of Christ. One day Christ will return and there will be a greater banquet to come. This banquet with Jesus the King, which is for all, any and all who've turned to Christ by faith. And we'll have access to that banquet because of what Christ has done for us. Because he's paid for our sins. We've been washed in his blood. Because his righteousness is ours. We have a place in that great eternal banquet. But friends, until then, Let's treasure the grace of God. Let's be amazed at the love of Christ in pursuing sinners. And let's together join in that mission, however long God gives us.